This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to the final episode of the Bailey Gifford Prize podcast. I'm joined today by the winner of this year's prize, Hallie Rubenhold, who has written The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. First, though, let's head back to Tuesday evening at the Science Museum in London and hear the moment when Hallie heard her name. Thanks again to our generous podcast supporters, the Blavatnik Family Foundation, for their continued support. It really is a good list of uh, books, I think, and I can tell you it was very hard to choose just two winners from it. (laughs) Too soon? Is it too soon? I never know with those things. Uh, I can promise you, actually, we've managed to do the one job we were asked to do and controversially pick a single winner. Uh, and I do want to take time to credit the judges for their efforts to that end, which were, it was very passionate, very principled. It always just about stayed on, on the right side of polite. Um, it's a very rewarding, but it's a hard task reading and engaging with many books. Uh, so please do give a round of applause to the judges. They did a great job. And we were expertly marshalled into choosing one winner by Toby Mundy, so I must thank him uh, as well. He does a great job on this prize. Uh, And one of the many benefits for me of chairing this prize, actually, was these expert readers often gave me their thoughtful judgments on what they were reading in the form of mini-book reviews, which they used to email me. And, of course, you can imagine my first thought was, oh, book reviews, good, I don't get enough of them in my daily life. Um, (laughs) But they did, and they were always clever and insightful, so I thought it might be fun very briefly, before we reflect on the winner, just to include some of the more disparaging ones from the pre-longlist stage. (laughs) Uh, Names have been removed to protect the innocence of both parties in this. Uh, The sort of writing in which a spade is never a spade when it can be a weathered worm splicer or dimpled steel caked with the rich tang of the soil. (laughs) This reads like daytime TV, Jeremy Kyle show meets the Kinsey Report. He must be a nightmare to sit around a campfire with. I wouldn't want it to win. This was one of the most boring books I've ever read. It made me want to post all my nudes online just to ignore it. Uh, Zand actually said that one. I, don't know. I am going to name the guilty there. Yeah. Uh, but actually, the main response we've had throughout this process is warmth, it's excitement, it's about the quality of the writing that's out there. And all six of these books, actually all 12 of the long-listed books, and many more we wanted to reward but we couldn't, they were great. They were life-affirming, culture-affirming, mind-enhancing pleasures to read. And that's been a wonderful experience. And I have this mini-theory that I bang on about, that there is now a new zeitgeist out there of expertise, quality, breadth and depth. It's a countercultural response, very obviously, to so much of the tat that is out there, the flip, facile nonsense we have to consume elsewhere in our political discourse not least tonight, I would imagine. On social media, not least tonight, I would imagine. And that means this can be an era, above all things, for an autodidact, this person who seeks to find wisdom in the face of folly, authority in a world of chatter, and repose amid all the baffling noise. And where can we find it? Is it a good question? One answer is long-standing literary magazines that have recently undergone an exciting (laughs) redesign. But, actually, the place we all find it collectively is books. Everyone in this room, everyone in this industry, is actually working to a laudable aim of spreading a bit of cleverness in the world. And that's something to be celebrated, and it's something to celebrate tonight. And this prize, so lavishly 
sponsored by Bailey Gifford, is a part of that process, rewarding the thoughtful and the smart, those who devote their lives to making us all a bit cleverer. And that's a great thing. But enough of me wanging on. Let's actually get to the bit of the prize. Uh, Charles Pardew, do you want to come up so you can give it? Because we are now getting to the interesting bit. And I'm delighted to say that the winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for 2019, the recipient of undying respect, renown, and £50,000 is... Hallie Rubenhold for the five, the untold lives of the women killed by Jack Lewis. Oh, wow. That is, that's been quite a ride. I'm extremely honoured to be only the seventh woman in 20 years to have been awarded this prize for a history of silenced women. Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly, and millions like them the poor and the marginalized, whose voices and experiences have been almost erased from mainstream history, erased even from our very definition of what history has been, the great deeds of great men. It is time for history to be more than just this. So thank you, everybody. Thank you so very much for this. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hallie, thanks so much for joining us today. And first of all, goodness me, congratulations. Thank you so much. How are you feeling? Um, It's all extremely surreal. I don't think it's really sunk in yet. It's overwhelming and incredible. And um, I feel so deeply honoured to have been chosen amongst this fantastically talented shortlist of authors. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, you have an equal chance of being the winner alongside of this, these five other writers. It must be quite an odd feeling the day before and the day in the run-up to the prize that you've got this hope mingled with the possibility of disappointment and a whole range of emotions, no doubt. Yeah, the agony and the ecstasy, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. And um, especially the other authors, you know, the thing is, as an author, you always want to support your comrades in arms and other authors, you know what they go through. You feel very empathetic. Um, and um, it, it feels fantastic to be chosen, but I also know what it feels like to lose as well. So let's talk about what what you had thought about Jack the Ripper, because obviously that's the, the starting point of your interest in wanting to not look at him, mm. but to look at the women that he killed. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, before I wrote this book, before I even thought about writing this book, I had no interest in Jack the Ripper because the whole thing was just so sordid and disgusting and awful. And, and also, I think as a historian... Um, Uh, The idea of delving into something which has been considered kind of a pseudo-history for so long just seemed anathema. You know, why would I want to do that? Um, Why would I want to muddy my hands? Um, But actually, (laughs) I've really come out the other end of this and I really thought and really thinking, in fact, historians really need to go into these kind of pseudo-historical corners and reclaim stuff because that's the only way 
the facts are ever going to see the light of day. And there's nothing wrong with exploring things which are sort of niche or strange um, and, and exposing them to the light of day, really. And the pitch to the publisher was what? The pitch to the publisher was, um, this is not a book about Jack the Ripper. That was the first line of my proposal, uh, in fact. And um, I wanted to write a book which had really nothing to do with the murders, but actually looked at these five women simply as people and uh, as Victorians and what their experiences would have been like in London at that time. Let's name them, because that's an important part of this story. Yes, all victims should always be named. Um, the five victims of Jack the Ripper were Marianne or Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly. The assumption has always been in this pseudo-history that you uh, describe that these women were all prostitutes. The facts as you unearthed them told you what? Well, <laughs> that they weren't. I mean, and the, again, you know, the word fact is something that is bandied about so much um, in within Ripperology, this idea that there are hard and fast facts. And what I soon learned was there aren't. There simply aren't hard and fact facts. Um, and so much of what we think are facts aren't. It's based on newspaper reports and you take... 10 different newspaper reports and you get 10 different versions of what somebody believed happened. Um, and it's extremely convoluted and it's perforated with holes. Um, and the legend that they were prostitutes really is built on the back of this. And I really had to scrape away a lot of this, peel back layers and look for what we can consider to be facts. And what I found really in three of the five cases of these women was that there is no substantial evidence whatsoever that they were involved in the sex trade. There is substantial evidence for two. And by that, I mean documented evidence, not hearsay, but actual documents. And also the, the um, presumption that they were prostitutes was because their bodies were found outside and that they were murdered lying down, which tells us what? Well, I mean, this is... <laughs> there's so much wrong with that assumption in so many ways. Um, first of all, the Victorian police and the press believed here were these dispossessed women found in dark corners in the worst part of town. They were, they were alcoholics. Um, they had no fixed abode. Um, they were not part of any form of respectable society, therefore they must be prostitutes. Because what else were they doing outside at night? Um, and we know because of various other events and things that happened, like the case of Elizabeth Cass the year before, which really questioned the notion of um, what women are doing outside at night, and there are lots of reasons why women could be outside at night, that there were lots of reasons for women to be outside, which had nothing to do with prostitution. 
And and essentially, th this book is as much about chronicling what happened to these particular women and who they were, as it is about um, the the social conditions that emerge from their lives. That that what killed them was not just Jack the Ripper, but but poverty and homelessness. Yes, it was it was Victorian society that killed these women, um, and. Um, Society creates victims. Through marginalization, society creates victims and it also creates murderers as well because society has to turn a blind eye to all of the warning signs that a killer is being created. It has to be set up to ignore that. It has to be set up to ensure that victims are forgotten about, that um, people who become victims you know, they're off doing things that nobody cares about because nobody cares about them. And these, the, the demographic of these women, they are working class, poor, literate. Were all of them literate? Not all of them were literate, but quite a number of them were. I mean, we're not absolutely sure with Mary Jane Kelly. We think, well... A number of, we know very little about Mary Jane Kelly, the final victim. She's quite enigmatic. Um, but a, a number of people said she was very well educated and that she could read, certainly. And not only that, she was an artist. And the only people receiving artistic uh, education of any sort were um, middle class and above, young women at that time. So that's, that's a very interesting thing. Um, uh, Polly Nichols, we know, was literate because she wrote a postcard to her father, which is one of the only uh, pieces of evidence we have written in her own voice. Um, Annie Chapman was literate. Um, Elizabeth Stride was not, though she may have been able to read. Um, and reading and writing were taught separately at that time, and sometimes girls would have been just taught to read and not to write. Um, Catherine Eddowes was literate. So, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing, considering um, mid-century, um, only roughly about 50% of English women could actually even sign their names. And the social mores in, in the, and the context in which these murders took place, you know, these uh, in, in some cases, these women had failed relationships. Uh, the, the, the divorce laws made an impact on them in terms of them not being able to uh, be housed in any way, going mm. off to the poorhouse and so on. All of those things are as important for you to convey as the the portraits of these women's lives. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, my book is not exploring why they were killed. It's exploring their lives. And this is just, that's kind of incidental to that. Their lives were, you know, all of these hardships. Their lives were uh, the workhouse. Their lives were endless childbirth, their lives were alcoholism, their lives were all of these things that um, people, especially in the working classes, faced in Victorian Britain. It's so interesting to me that you also... Uh the portrait that you paint of these women is is one of real humanity. There's there's a there's a bit in the towards the end of the the book where you talk about the possessions that were found on their bodies, and that feels so personal, so poignant. Tell me why that was important. Uh, it's incredibly important that we see them as human beings because I think what we're up against or what I was up against certainly is basically 130 years of 
um, commercialization of their deaths. So, I mean, even really soon after they were murdered, people were already doing tours and doing waxworks of these women that you could go and visit. And um, the dehumanization process, actually the dehumanization process began even before they were killed. So this idea that they were dehumanized after they were killed is only part of the story. I mean, they continued to be dehumanized after they were killed. Um, and it's just astonishing that we think it's okay to kind of use their murders as entertainment. Um, you know, people dressing up as Jack the Ripper for Halloween, um, you know, businesses in the East End naming themselves after Jack the Ripper, you know, people naming cocktails after Jack the Ripper, people going to various attractions in London where they're encouraged to laugh and scream their way through history. Um, I mean, come on, that's what I was up against. So, you know, these women were almost like fictional creatures in the same way that Jack the Ripper is thought to be almost fictional. I see him mentioned in the same breath as Frankenstein's monster and Dracula. Well, he was a real person and they were real people. So it was very important to me to make them human, to make their world feel very immediate, to make the reader feel that they could touch and smell and feel Victorian London not even Victorian London, the Victorian era. I mean, sometimes Elizabeth Stride was from Sweden. You know, Catherine Eddowes was from Wolverhampton. Um, um, Annie Chapman lived just outside of Windsor. You know, all, all, these places should feel real. These circumstances should feel real. Their experiences should feel real. And the thing about the possessions on their body, these were the things that were found on them when they died. And one of the most moving and difficult tasks for anybody to do in the wake of someone's death is to sort through their belongings because the belongings tell you so much about a person and their life, what they valued, how they defined themselves. Um, and, and here were these items in these women's pockets, the basis, ba most basic bits and pieces, the strands that they, they grasped onto gave their lives meaning, everything from a red mitten to a little tin box to a sliver of mirror to a piece of comb. Um, that is the sum total of a life. And, and it, of course, the, the items that you mentioned suggest that these women cared about how they looked. Mm. Yeah. Really interesting. So against the weight of this 130 years of ripperology, the kind of fake history, if you like, and construction of the mythology of Jack the Ripper, you had to find a way of telling the stories and building these pictures of these women and the portraits of these women. What kind of research did you have to do? Where did you go? It's it, The research was very painstaking. Um the first thing I had to do was try to pin down biographical facts about them. So we're back to the word fact again. Um, so things like, you know, obviously it's very important to see where they were living at various times, uh, who they were living with, what their school experiences were like, where they worked, these types of things. And the censuses were very useful for that. School records, workhouse records, extremely useful. You're a woman who gets excited over censuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I, I do. I do. It's so 
it's kind, it is embarrassing. And I, I, I remember sitting at a dinner party once and, and saying, oh, my God, I've just been looking at the 1881 census and da 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 And everybody's like, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you're crazy. But there's so much on a census that can tell you about a person and their life and who they lived with and the community they lived in. And they're just treasure troves. Having written this book... Um, just put the prize to one side. I, I just wonder about the impact of it on you because clearly wanting to tell the stories and hear the voices of these women and what their lives were like, really important to you. And I just wondered how you felt at the end of it. Were you satisfied that in your mind's eye you had done what you set out to do? Yes, yeah, Um you know, every writer has a, a journey, and I hate to use that term because it's so hackneyed. Um, every writer has a journey when they are sifting through material and putting it together and weaving it with their own words. And um, and you never know what's going to come out the other side. Um, and, you know, you have an idea and you aim for that. And sometimes it's slightly different. But yeah, I was I was pleased with how this came out, but I was also very motivated to do this because I I felt driven to do it. I wanted to tell their stories. I felt it was so important. And um, a lot of times I would be sitting at my computer and be very late at night. Um, sometimes I do my best thinking really kind of around midnight, just after midnight. And there were times when I felt completely alone, almost communing with these women. Um, it was very moving. And um, I listened to music a lot when I was really quite deep in thought. Um, certain pieces of music that I felt got me in the right emotional space because I felt touching how their experience would have been. is comes from the heart and then the head has to process it. Um, and I think trying to put empathy into writing about this very human experience, I think, is very important. And it's not something that historians naturally do because we have to pull back. We're trained to pull back. And I have done that as well. You know, you have to be impartial. But um, I think in this case, it really called for that very human touch. And, 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 the, and the result of the book is also a, a, a challenge in, uh, in terms of the, of the way in which history is written. The historiography of this is really important to you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I really feel very passionately about um, we need to start breaking down what we think of as history. Um, and... Uh, you know, we are so fixated on wars and generals and statesmen um, and, um, and and monarchs. And, um, and I think that, you know, for a lot of people, that's as far as they get with history. That's the history we have in the public sphere. And I think people will be much more engaged in the narrative of history when they saw how it applied to their own lives, meaning not, and I hate to say it, some people say, oh, well, that's just genealogy. No, it's really, really not. Social history, I mean, these individual stories of how people live their lives are incredible and they are part of our lives now. It's, it's exploring the human experience. And if we break down history and look at it like that, 
it's a much more gripping and immediate experience. Hallie Rubenhold, you've certainly done that with this book. Thank you so much and congratulations again. Um, Hallie Rubenhold is the 21st winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize, now joins a star-studded list of non-fiction authors. In earlier episodes, we spoke with the very first winner, Anthony Beaver, along with Margaret Macmillan, Philippe Sands and Anna Funder, Helen MacDonald and Philip Hall. Do have a listen to those episodes if you haven't already. The Blavatnik Family Foundation, who are generously supporting this podcast, also host the dinner. Without them, it would not be possible to bring you this series. Thank you to them again. And to be the first to hear the prize news, do sign up to the newsletter on our website, www.thebaileygiffordprize.co.uk and follow us on Facebook at Bailey Gifford Prize and at BG Prize on Twitter and Instagram. That's all for this year. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. 